Thank you for the good singing. Please be seated. We are studying Peter's second letter. And if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me to 2 Peter, we come again to chapter 1. We are going very slowly through a number of very important words that he gives to us, beginning in verse 5, about how we must give all diligence to add to our faith certain things, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and today, godliness. Each of these words uh, has an important tie-in with the rest of the book, and so this is a good summary, not only of the message of Second Peter, but also of the Christian life, the, the course that is laid before us. And I'd like to read to you once again, starting at the beginning and uh, down through verse 11, but know that the theme is godliness, and you'll notice that uh, that word appears more than once in the passage that we'll read. So now, from Second Peter chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he is cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that that knowledge of God and of Christ our Lord would again be kindled afresh, that such exceedingly great and precious promises might be present to our mind, and that we could just taste that divine power which is in us and that gives us strength to persevere, to persevere in godliness. We confess, our Father, that there is that missing elements so often in our lives. We long to be a more devout, a, a, a more devoted, a more passionate people for you, a, a people that are like you, God-like and godly in every way. And so we pray that you would bless this study and our uh, time together in your word to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. It was our joy to hear last week in the missions conference about the tremendously exciting growth that's going on in various parts of the world, including in Africa, where there's already been a remarkable change. We heard that, they, that there are expected to be 750 million more Christians than there are today in the next 50 years in Africa. That's uh, not a typo. 750 million he said to us, well, eagerly await the good things that that will bring to that continent indeed and to the world. But it has already brought a tremendous change to that people. Um, Nigeria uh, now has the largest population of any country in Africa, nearly 100 million Christians. And I was interested to read that uh, a few years ago at the turn of the century, um, before the great resurgence of militant Islam, I must say, but at the, at the height of their Christian growth, Nigeria 
became the number one happiest nation in the world. Number one, according to the annual World Values Survey. By comparison, the United States, I can see it on your faces already, hovers around the 16th place in the world and has for many years in the list of the world's happiest countries. Well, you think with all of our wealth and entertainment and opportunity and so forth that, that we'd have been number one. America's number one, number one. No, number 16 in happiness, I'm afraid to tell you. Nigeria, the nation that is one of the poorest nations in the world, ranking 140th in economic health, came in at number one for happiness. How do you explain this? I mean, how can a country of such profound poverty clobber us when it comes to happiness? Well, the answer is the subject of our sermon today, surprisingly. Paul elsewhere explains it. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We must envy them. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Indeed, he says, those who desire to be rich <clears throat> fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. But you, O man of God, he writes, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you also are called. We're going to be talking today about pursuing the great Gain of godliness. The great gain of godliness, that which is able to make us both happy and holy. And clearly, godliness is no optional spiritual luxury for a few quaint Christians of a bygone era or some group of super saints today. Oh no, it is both the privilege and the duty of every Christian to pursue godliness or as Peter says here, to give all diligence, to add godliness to the perseverance that we learned about last time. Uh, a little definition here, since I uh, don't know if the uh, common English definition is, is, is quite uh, on the foundation of the word of God. The, the Greek word for godliness, I, I think it's a word that some of you will know, actually, the Greek word, because it became a, a common Christian name in the ancient world, Eusebia, or the masculine form of it, Eusebius. That's the word, Eusebius. If you're taking notes, uh, you can spell that uh, U-C-B-S, Eusebius. Gotcha. It was uh, a pretty common word for the day, not even outside the church, meaning simply uh, a respectful or a pious attitude toward a god or even a person. He, Paul said to the Athenians, I, I see you're very godly is the word, pious, Eusebia. In Christian usage, though, uh, it definitely has the sense of uh, devout or pious, or sometimes living as God would live, but living from the inside out, you understand. Godliness is more than Christian character. Not less, but it is more than Christian character. It is Christian character that springs specifically from devotion to God, and devotion right at the center of that word, both in its etymology and its, uh, and its meaning. It's Christian character that springs from devotion to God, that inward quality of a heart that is set on God, his kingdom, and his purposes. One calls it um, God-centeredness. That's pretty good. Another calls it the character of someone who takes God seriously. The character of someone who takes God seriously. Well, it's also very important, I think, to understand what it is not. Godliness is not diligent involvement in ministry. We shouldn't think that a godly Christian means a busy Christian, necessarily, or somebody who even goes to church and Bible study each week and has a regular quiet time and serves in the church and so forth. 
all those being good things. But uh, the point is, a man might be a conscientious parent, a zealous church worker, a dynamic evangelist even for Christ, or a talented church leader. But none of these things matter, to the Lord anyway, if at the same time he is not a godly person. It's that which again springs from the inner devotion to God. So if Christ is not followed in the heart and mind, if Christ is not loved and served there, then he is not loved and served at all. As a general rule, the Lord always reminds us about, uh, it must spring from the heart. If you are not chaste in the heart, then you are not chaste. Uh, if you are not a lover of your neighbor from the heart, you do not love him. And life must be lived to God from the inside out. God looks on the heart, and it has to be there that we love and serve him best. And so if we give him nothing else, we must give him nothing less than who we truly are. That is our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, and our choices. So godliness starts deep down at the root, is my point. Godliness means having these thoughts and feelings and choices and desires revolving around the God whom we love and revere. Jerry Bridges has written a great deal on that subject of godliness, and he stated in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, quote, no higher compliment can be paid to a Christian than to call him a godly person. I leave that with you to think about. If you have godliness with nothing else, you are a happy person because you have, from the depths of your being, God himself. And God is far more than anything else you could get. And that is the Nigerian secret of happiness. Godliness, having God from the inmost person, having everything revolve around him. What else do you need? Hence, godliness with contentment, great gain. So I ask you as we begin, do you want great gain? I would like to make three practical points to you from our passage then. First, most basically, to grow in godliness, you must begin with Christ. No man comes to the Father but by him. To grow in godliness, you must begin with Christ. As you notice, verse 3 said in the lead-up to this, speaking, you notice, of Jesus, his divine power, that is a divine being a reference you notice to to Jesus, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is the power for godliness. If you want growth, well, friends, if you want growth, you first need life. If you want change, you need power. And his divine power, Peter says, this this divine power with his exceedingly great and precious promises, this precious faith we have in him, this is the prerequisite, right? This is what you need first. Uh, Bridges again writes, this is the heartbeat of the godly person, that as he contemplates God and the awesomeness of his infinite majesty, power, and holiness, and then dwells upon the riches of God's mercy and grace, Poured out at Calvary, his heart is captivated by this one who could love him so. He is satisfied with God alone, but he is never satisfied with his present experience of God. He always yearns for more. All right, this is the soul of it, he says here. Uh, how obvious it is that you have to have him before you can have more of him. You have to have, have a taste of him. But once you have a taste of him, as Bridget says, you're not going to be satisfied with anything else or anything less than what he alone can give. Godliness comes at the root from knowing, from desiring, from revering our awesome Savior. 
And that's what Paul speaks about in his letter to the Corinthians, second letter, when he says how we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The more that we look and gaze with wonder, with devotion, with adoration, with affection, the more that we find our, ourselves bearing that same birthmark, that same image. Or one more celebrity endorsement. <clears throat> John Owen writes, A mind filled with the love of Christ as crucified will be changed into his image and likeness. End quote. So I, I, I've begun this way quite intentionally because I, am, I, I have been anticipating an objection that we all have deep in the back of our recesses of our mind, the, the devil's lie, the original lie that he gave back in the garden, that happiness and God-centered godliness are in two different directions. That this is the diabolical lie that I am setting myself against for the God's word reminds us that there is no greater joy or happiness to be had than to have the Lord, than to have the one, uh, Psalm 16, in whose presence is fullness of joy, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. And to know him is to delight in him and his way. And so Peter, for his part, gives us many reminders. Look at these great, uh, the exceedingly great and precious promises, the preciousness of the faith, and, and so forth, this, this hyperbolic language uh, that continues from his previous letter. Um, in fact, it continues in to this second half of his letter as he begins to write just how miserable the ungodly are well, at the present moment, leading many others astray, and how ripe ungodly people are for the judgment to come. In fact, it's, it's practically the word that he uses for people that are ripe for judgment, um, which he uses several times. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5, how God brought the flood on that ancient world, the world of the ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah were an example afterward to those who would live ungodly, 2.6. He warns in 3.7 of the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Ungodly. This word that is used later, Peter uses later for those who don't know God, who are awaiting condemnation, who are wrecking their lives and the lives of others, and whom God is about to judge. But, he says in 2.9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. 3.11, since all things will be dissolved, what manner of persons are you to be? In holy conduct and godliness. 2 Peter 3.11. So you see why you must begin with Christ, why you need Christ, why you need his power, why you need his promises. We are not people with a self-contained power source, like our gasoline-powered cars that are self-sufficient. We are much, much more like uh, electric motors that need to be plugged in, that need to be connected constantly to an outside power source. That's who we are. And before I move on, maybe there's someone that I need to address personally now and say, dear friend, how, how long are you going to be both miserable and powerless? with the judgment of God hovering above you, awaiting you on your head all the while, telling yourself that I'm going to be able to find happiness somehow, some way, while, as I tell you today, infinite joy is offered to you. You come to God through the mercy and the free forgiveness of Christ. Gain life as life was created to be, and you will see what a fool you were. My first point, to grow in godliness... You must begin with Christ. Second, to grow in godliness, you need the right motivation. You need the right motivation. You begin with Christ, but you also need to continue with the right moti motivation. Well, Christ is with us, not just at the beginning, the whole time, but continuing. Um, I, to explain, I'm focusing on Peter's next uh, phrase here, leading in verse 5. 
but also for this very reason, add to your faith uh, godliness, right? For this very reason, pushing us back up to those things that are above, um, brothers, sisters, it's right to desire, to desire God's blessing on your life, on your family, on your business. But, but godliness is not a means to an end. Godliness is not a means to that end. Our devotion to God himself must be primary. And that is why Peter gives all these God-centered reasons to add to our faith godliness. And any blessing that we desire, in addition to that, must be, uh, God, I want your blessing so that my life will bring glory to your name. Samuel Rutherford, a great leader among the Scottish Covenanters, had a a nobleman, a Scottish nobleman that he wrote to named Alexander Gordon of Earlston. Gordon was the man. He was a man for his generation um, as a a politician, the kind of politician we need today. Strong, eminent, one who was able to give leadership for both the church and the nation when they were resisting the king's desire to add the traditions of men into the worship of God and to become the head of the Church of Scotland. As a member of the Scottish Parliament, uh, Gordon gave a particularly brave and famous speech before the king's representative on behalf of the rights of the Kirk to practice her faith solely according to the word of God. And when he returned home, the elders of his presbytery were ready to cheer for him. They wanted to pass a resolution of thanks for him and for his brave stand. But Gordon would have none of it. And he explained. Gordon said, fathers and brothers, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And and you do not know it. For I... I had a deep, malicious, revengeful motive in my heart behind all my fine and patriotic speeches in Parliament. I hated the king's agent, Montrose, more than I loved the freedom of the Kirk. Spare me, therefore, the sentence of putting that act of shame on your books. Brothers and sisters, we don't always have to be so public about it. My point is, this is a man who cared about godliness, who knew what real godliness is and what matters to God. And he he was the man of the day. He gave the speech of the hour. He led the nation. And he knew that unless he was truly in his heart, that all of his bravery and victory and fine words were nothing as God measured it. He gave the speech of his life, and he came home ashamed because he knew that in his heart it was evil passions rather than a zeal for the Kirk. I, I say this to you because to grow in godliness, you need the right motivation. It's not what people think. It's not what you can do. And the spiritual disciplines that I'll be speaking of in a moment, the spiritual disciplines in Scripture are not marks of godliness. Not in and of themselves. The Pharisees diligently practiced many spiritual disciplines that would probably put almost all of you to shame. Fasting twice in a week and so forth. And Jesus considered them the epitome of ungodliness. Do not consider, do not confuse, rather, godliness with spiritual disciplines. They had the wrong motive. And all their work just made them worse. The Pharisees, as many people today, saw spiritual disciplines as the ends, not the means. They mistook the practice for godliness and not a path to godliness. 
And any practice, I tell you, any practice including all those in the Bible that can be measured and timed and counted, well, it may be very important as a means of grace, as it's called, but do not confuse these things with godliness. We must not abandon practices, of course, that are taught in the Bible, but my point is to grow in godliness, you need the right motivation. That means that we engage in all these disciplines and so forth to pursue God, to pursue godliness, devotion to God, piety, the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 2, that is so very precious. Knowledge is not the goal and motivation and measurement. Knowledge is something that you can pick up by study. The knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord in verse 2 is very precious indeed. But understand that it's knowing God and Jesus Christ our Lord that is the goal. That's the motivation. Knowing Him, walking with Him, that's eternal life. Point two, to grow in godliness, you need the right motivation. Third and finally, to grow in godliness, you must give all diligence. Again, this last phrase in our lead-in in verse 5, Peter says so in verse 5 here, Giving all diligence, add to your faith these things, including godliness. Or verse 10, be even more diligent, so to make your calling and election sure by adding these things. In other words, um, well, you can, you can begin your journey this day. You can come to the Lord right now. Begin this day. But the journey lasts a lifetime. Salvation can be yours in a moment. Godliness, daily effort. And that's why I think especially that previous virtue that we studied, perseverance, add to perseverance, godliness, is so important because you see to become godly, you need to hang in there. No matter what, um, any growth in godliness is going to have to be a, a result of that perseverance that we just learned about. The Bible, you see, never teaches, or I should say perhaps, teaches neither let go and let God, nor does it say, now God's done his part, you go be grateful and now it's up to you, all up to you. No, 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 it says, since God is so powerfully at work training you, you give yourself to make every effort. Or to be more precise, back to quote Paul elsewhere, you must work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And just as no farmer sows a crop accidentally... <laughs> So Christians must sow to the Spirit intentionally if they are going to reap godliness. Hence, be all the more diligent. Giving all diligence. Be even more diligent. Uh, it says on the, at the beginning and at the end. Or to change the picture, in our world we often see people going to great lengths to train their bodies whether to make them look better, like Jeff Mitchell's, or to help them run in a marathon, perhaps. But, but how many are giving all diligence to their souls? Why must the body live in state and the soul be given scraps? The, the Bible uses this picture and, and says, I quote, exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Exercise yourself toward godliness. That's the idea. The uh, NAS translates that verse a New American Standard translates it, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
probably from this we get spiritual disciplines, right? Paul says, train your body all you want. The effect is temporary. But godliness, well, godliness profits all things now and forever. God is the motivation. Discipline is the means to that end through godliness. God's word says, you, O man of God, flee from these things and pursue godliness. In that exercise metaphor, run after it. Paul uses the idea of exercise, calling for a disciple to have a proper diet in that same context of being nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine. Uh, you want to run a marathon, you got to eat a healthy diet. So he says, if you want to exercise yourself toward godliness, be nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine. You need proper training to labor and strive, he says. You need to have proper focus. We have fixed our hope. You need to have help. You need to be able to give help to the weak, right? Show yourself as an example, he says in that context. And, and so it's the most practical thing, he says. The most pra it's the most practical thing you can pursue. Godliness. It has promise for everything in this life and that which is to come. And in a day when there are more diet philosophies and programs for losing weight and getting in fit than you could possibly count, there's only one way to godliness. Exercise. And what kind of exercise? Well, it's obviously not bodily exercise, otherwise bodybuilders would be the godliest people in the world. The Bible's referring to spiritual exercise, that kind of diligence. Spiritual exercise and the practices found in Scripture that cultivate godliness are therefore known as spiritual disciplines. But what are they? Well, it's uh, not my text here. It's not my um, subject before me. I'm not going to be able to give a comprehensive answer. I'm going to sketch a couple things and then emphasize what Peter emphasizes. But uh, I will say the English Puritan Thomas Watson wrote a short but strong book on the subject. M many books have been written on this, but uh, The Godly Man's Picture, at the end of which he lists eight things to foster growth in godliness. Um, and it's too short, giving each only a, a brief paragraph of three or four sentences. Tim Challies, though, takes this up. He has a whole sermon on each of the eight if you want to look it up. But, but here are the eight. First, he says, trust the means of grace. Um, theological word for God's word and prayer and being baptized into Christ and communing with Christ. Second, guard against worldliness. The enemy of godliness. Third, think holy thoughts. Fill your mind. Meditate. Make some advance up here. Watch for temptation. Ponder the brevity of life. Redeem your time. Fellowship with godly people. And number eight, purpose to be godly. Well, he's got a good one. Bridges has a good modern classic. Lots of, lots of things that could be said. Um, you, you'll find many biblical lists organized differently here and there. The, the point is, from the passage before us, is that no one coasts into Christ's likeness. All progress in godliness requires spirit-filled effort and purpose, purposeful purpose. Um, as far as those things which Peter himself most commends, it is the Word, which we'll see at the end of this uh, chapter especially. He's got a whole section on the Word that we'll consider. And prayer. Um, uh, these uh, standing above all uh, in the Scriptures um, bring back up Jerry Bridges for a moment. He's one of the few books that I think pretty close to a modern classic on this topic as he explains that, you know, spiritual disciplines can be divided into two groups. 
There are the personal disciplines that you practice alone. There's the interpersonal spiritual disciplines that you practice with others. Um, uh, that's, that's good. I'll come back to that in a second here. The personal disciplines, the interpersonal disciplines. Uh, Peter, Peter is very keen on, on these things as well. And, and he has a lot of warnings about the danger of interpersonal spiritual wreckage in chapter 2 and chapter 3. You want to advance in godliness? Now, Watson's right. You fellowship with godly people. You give yourself to those communal spiritual disciplines, and you watch out for others that are against you. Personal disciplines, such as the Word of God. Peter writes, for example, in verse 20, knowing this first, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men spoke as they are moved by the Holy Spirit. So you do well to heed it. Verse 19. Uh, personal disciplines like the Word of God and prayer, private worship, fasting, stewardship of time and money, keeping a spiritual journal perhaps, godly learning and more. Um, the the uh, emphasis being uh, um, in the Bible itself, Scripture, this doctrine that accords with godliness, 1 Timothy 6. The truth that accords with godliness, Titus 1.1. Or as uh, Moody said, the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. All right. So just as we feed our bodies every day, so we must feed our souls every day, primarily on God's word, as man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that the Lord says that proceeds from the mouth of God. Obviously, you can't live by every word that comes from the mouth of God if you've never even read every word. You're prone to forget it as well, and so it's by meditation on God's word that the knowledge becomes experience in our hearts and lives, and when we reading this truth and meditating on it, then we feel it. We can read that God is love, that as we meditate on that truth and carry it with us, we begin to feel the love of God. Uh, prayer, the other big one that he takes up, I won't get into that now, but God's word is a great help to prayer. Prayer will be boring if you say the same old things about the same old things every day. So when you pray, why don't you pray the Bible? Turn the words of Scripture into the words of your prayers, as I try to illustrate for you every week. Or, for example, when you want to pray, you can open up Psalm 23 and just reading the first line, the Lord is my shepherd. And you can pray, I, I thank you so much, Lord, that you are my shepherd and that you have sent the good shepherd and please shepherd my family and cause them to love you as their shepherd as I love you as my shepherd. Please shepherd me in the decisions before me. Please shepherd those at church who's shepherding us, and so forth. Um, when, you're, when you're out of ideas for the Lord is my shepherd, nothing else comes to mind, go to the next line until you run out of time or words. Anyone could do this. You'll never run out of things to say. You'll never be bored and say the same old things. You'll pray about the same old things, but in new ways, and you'll have new things to pray about. So God's word and prayer, uh, Peter's emphasis, the big two personal disciplines, if you want to know how to give all diligence to add godliness, you have to wait until a little bit later in the letter, but those are the big ones. We also uh, must exercise interpersonal spiritual disciplines. What's that, you say? I mean, like worship, like um, delighting in a holy day with others and hearing God's word preached and witnessing to and with others and serving others and fellowshipping, not merely socializing praying with others, family worship, and so forth. Personal godliness extends beyond our personal lives. And that means godliness involves more than private devotion and private disciplines. Godliness directs the inward and outward life to the church and the world. And Christ-likeness toward others and by the help of others is essential to biblical Christianity. Peter, in his first letter, majors more on that. In the second letter, he is much more concerned about the evil influences of the same things, 
be discerning. Well, that's all I'd like to say to enumerate uh, some of the ways that we can, practically speaking, uh, be diligent. And more help will be available in the sermons to come, as well as in those spiritual classics I mentioned. But to review today, what I've said to you is, to grow in godliness, you must begin with Christ. With his divine, without his divine power, without his great and precious promises, you're getting nowhere. Secondly, to grow in godliness, you need the right motivation. And thirdly, to grow in godliness, you must give all diligence. All diligence. Exercise. Okay? But to conclude where I began, I'd like to conclude by reminding you of the great gain of godliness. I'm, I'm trying to, if I can use the word, sell you, to convince you of the great personal, practical reward of godliness that will get you going in this direction. I'd like to conclude where I began, reminding you of the great gain of godliness, both for this life and that which is to come. And I'd like to illustrate it again in conclusion from Africa, using an article from Matthew Paris, that I have read to you on another occasion, but uh, Matthew Paris, if you don't remember, is a former British diplomat and uh, MP, uh, member of parliament. He's now a columnist for the Times uh, of London, the Times, as they call it. Uh, certainly no Christian. In fact, he was voted one of the 50 most important LGBT people in Britain a couple years ago. So making this article that I'm about to read you from his pen all the more striking and persuasive. The article is called, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. Before Christmas, he writes, I returned after 45 years to the country that as a boy I knew as Nyasaland. Today it's Malawi, and the Times Christmas Appeal includes a small British charity working there. Pump Aid helps rural communities install a simple pump, letting people keep their village wells sealed and clean. I went to see this work. It inspired me renewing my flagging faith in development charities, but traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief, too, one I've been trying to banish all my life. But an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood, it confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now, as a confirmed atheist, I have become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I'd say, that Salvation is part of the package, but Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine, what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It is also transferred to his flock. And this is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing. 
First then the observation. We had friends who were missionaries and as a child I often stayed with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the city we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts. The faith appears to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealing with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. At 24, traveling by land across the continent reinforced this impression from Algiers to Niger, Nigeria, Cameroon, the Central African Republic, then right through to the Congo, to Rwanda, to Tanzania and Kenya. Four student friends and I drove our old Land Rover to Nairobi. And whenever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something had changed in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to. Something in their eyes, the way that they approached you, direct, man to man, without looking down or away. They had not become more deferential towards strangers, in some ways less so, but more open. This time in Malawi it was the same. I met no missionaries. You don't encounter missionaries in the lobbies of expensive hotels discussing development strategy documents as you do with big NGOs. But instead I noticed that a handful of the most impressive African members of the pump aid team were privately strong Christians. Privately because the charity is entirely secular and I never heard any of its team so much as mention religion while working in the villages but I picked up the Christian references in our conversations. Once I saw studying a devotion, when I saw studying a devotional textbook in the car, one on Sunday went off to church at dawn for a two-hour service, and so forth. It would suit me to believe that their honesty, diligence, and optimism in their work was unconnected with their personal faith. The work was secular but surely affected by what they were. What they were was in turn influenced by a conception of man's place in the universe that Christianity had taught. Now there's long been a fashion among Western academic sociologists, he writes, for placing tribal value systems within a ring fence beyond critiques founded in our own culture. Theirs and therefore the best for them, authentic and intrinsically of equal worth to ours. I don't follow this. I observe that tribal belief is no more peaceable than ours and that it suppresses individuality. People think collectively, first in terms of community, extended family and tribe, this Rural traditional mindset then feeds into the big man and gangster politics of the African city and the exaggerated respect for a swaggering leader and the literal inability to understand the whole idea of loyal opposition, anxiety, fear of evil spirits, of ancestors, of nature and the wild, of tribal hierarchy, of quite everyday things strikes deep into the whole structure of African thought. Every man has his place and call it fear or respect, a great weight grinds down the individual spirit, stunting curiosity. People won't take the initiative. They won't take things into their own hands or on their own shoulders. And how can I, as someone in both camps, explain When the philosophical tourist moves from one worldview to another, he finds the very moment of passing into the new that he loses the language to describe the landscape of the old. But let me try an example. The answer given by Sir Edmund Hillary to the question, 
Why climb the mountain? Because it's there, he said. To the rural African mind, this is an explanation of why one would not climb the mountain. Well, it's there. Just there. Why interfere? Nothing to be done about it or with it. Hillary's further explanation that nobody else had climbed it would be the second reason for their passivity. Christianity. Post-Reformation, post-Luther, with this teaching of a direct, personal, two-way link between the individual and God, unmediated by the collective and unsubordinate to any other human being, smashes straight through the, philosoph the philosophical and spiritual framework I've just described. It offers something to hold on to, to those anxious to cast off a crushing tribal groupthink. This is why and how it liberates. Liberates. The article goes on. I won't read anymore. I hope I've made the case for godliness. Not crushing. Liberating. Brothers and sisters, godliness with contentment is great, great gain. Give all diligence. Be even more diligent and exercise yourself toward godliness. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we, how we know the foolishness, the foolishness that continues to rob our minds and our lives as we think that Godliness is a path to misery and godliness will pop into our laps without exercise or diligence. Father, we confess our wicked folly to, the, to our shame. We pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would give us such a, a passion to, to pursue you. God-centeredness that revolution that comes to the mind and to the heart and to the life of one who is freed and able to take his stand and able to live unashamed, knowing whom we have believed, being persuaded that you are able to keep that which we entrusted to you to that day. Deliver us, deliver our world from the ungodliness which mires it and drags it down. And all the while, the looming prospect of judgment, the echoes of a great flood and of fire from heaven, of Sodom and Gomorrah, looming every day over the ungodly. Give us again a sight 